0: Good morning, Evergreen. I don't know if you noticed, um, but it's sunny. It's a really hard day to be an atheist, I'll tell you. Look at that sun. You know, I boy, uh, for those of you who I've never met before, my name is AJ Swoboda. I uh, pastor church in downtown Southeast Portland called Theophilus, people for people with the darkroom glasses. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, by virtue of my relationship with Jared and Ann Roth, who have been huge supporters of uh, the ministry that God has sort of laid into my wife and my uh, lab. Uh, we have a gr- just a wonderful relationship with this church um, and it's an honor to be able to be with you this morning. And be able to talk about uh, some just I think really important things. I, I want real quick, um, Kevin. I uh, I was at camp with you this last week, and I think I don't know, maybe boy, I think we baptized like twenty five kids or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we had a, a we. I think I, a number of kids had really really powerful experiences of. Uh, grace, really cool Holy Spirit stuff. But I wanted to just say to you and Emily in front of everybody publicly that you guys are some of the greatest pastors I've ever worked with. (laughs) The phenomenal people. And I think uh, actually Ru- Russ, Russ uh, Green, who's sitting up here in the front row, I actually got to share uh, the same room with Russ for uh, one night. Well, sort of the same room we were adjoining and Russ was the co-director for the camp. And Russ, you did an unbelievable job as well. Thank you for all of your hard work to the <laughs> students. And, uh, uh. <clears throat> it's a very interesting time for my, myself my wife. Quinn is gonna be having our first baby in about two weeks. We have uh, no idea if it's a boy or a girl. We're hoping it's one of the two. (laughs) From the ultrasounds, we're pretty sure that it's human, although it does have a large head. This morning, I'm going to throw you in the midst of a part of the Bible that I'm going to guess is foreign to you. The book of Judges. Judges is a book that I, for 16, well, 14 years of, of really being a follower of Jesus, this is the first time in my life that I've really taken time to read and study and just kind of dwell in this book uh, called Judges. By, by the virtue of having the name Judges, it's not the, the book that evokes images of good, fluffy, um, <laughs> a good, fluffy God. It evokes images really of, of some really hard stuff in the life of Israel. And this morning I want to talk about what it means to be a person who actually lives out the spirit-filled life. The book of Judges, I'm going to give you a little bit of history because I think it's important if I'm going to throw you in the midst of this book, I need to give you a little bit of history that will help make sense of what you're about to read. The book of Judges follows the book of Joshua, which comes right after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what, what we call the Torah. The book of Exodus tells the story of Israel being redeemed from the powers of Egypt. Moses, who is the, the head of Israel, if you will, God, Yahweh is the head, but uh, Moses is sort of the appointed human leader. He leads the people out of Egypt. But what's sad about the life of Moses is Moses never really had the opportunity to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. He got to lead them into the desert. And he dies as they stand looking over the river at the promised land. So I don't know what that would have been like as a leader for Moses, for Moses to have thought, wow, God, I've done all this work for you, but I guess, wow, this is fairly anticlimactic to not be able to lead the people into Israel. But actually, it's very climatic the end of his life in Deuteronomy 34, as the people of Israel are standing on the Jordan River about to enter into the Promised Land after 40 years in the desert, Moses dies. And it says that Moses was so loved by God that God is actually the one who buries him. Imagine that funeral. Imagine getting a eulogy by Yahweh. Moses dies, and this young leader steps up by the name of Joshua. Joshua has big shoes to fill. I would imagine, I've pastored in a number of places, I've had to fill people's shoes. I would imagine that filling Moses' shoes would have been a task. The people are excited to enter the promised land. They follow Joshua as they cross the river and they enter into the promised land and Joshua is now their leader. And they are entered into this land that God had promised them for generations. When they enter into the promised land actually, it says that they cross the river into this city called Gilgal sounds like it's from Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? You think, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, J. R. L. Tolkien, you're like, did he just plagiarize every name in the Bible? He basically did. This city, Gilgal, is a very important city for Israel because when they cross the river, Joshua tells them, I want you to take some stones and I want you to lay them across the river and across the bank of the river as a memorial to the fact that God has brought you out of Egypt and into the promised land. So in this city called Gilgal, they have these rocks where there's a memorial stone to to Yahweh, God, like redeeming Israel from this absolutely horrible period of slavery in their life. The book of Joshua ends and Joshua dies. And we enter into this season called the book of Judges or the period of the Judges. And what's interesting about the book of Judges is really, frankly, well, about how repetitive it is. The whole book of Judges is about the people of Israel having been entered into the promised land, but now not just entering the promised land, they have to learn to keep the promised land. I, I, the same thing I think about marriage, it, it, it's so easy. To stand in front of 200, 300 people in front of all your friends and say the phrase, I do. But then you realize that you have to do something called dishes. <laughs> <clears throat> Laundry. It changes. It's easy to enter. It's a different thing to keep it. Israel goes from this period of time of having entered... that. the question isn't have they entered the promised land the question is now can they keep the promised land and the book of Judges is frankly about how they, they can't do it the whole story of the book of Judges is this cycle over and over and over again. <clears throat> Israel sins, God gets really ticked. They pray, God sends a deliverer slash judge and they go to a season of peace again. And it starts all over. Israel sins, God sends a leader and they go back to peace over and over and over. And, and really ultimately the lesson is this. I heard this once said, and I think it's so profound that it wasn't a problem for God to take Israel out of Egypt because, well, that's not hard for God to do. What's really hard is keeping Egypt out of Israel. God can redeem Israel from oppression, but for some weird on reason, Israel loves to put themselves back into oppression. That they may be free. You can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel and frankly, the whole book of Judges is like this the series of books that changed my childhood called the Berenstein Bears. <laughs> the Berenstein Bears are a collection of stories about this bear family. That, I mean, the, all of these wonderful stories. You know, the Berenstein Bears go to the dentist, the Berenstein Bears get a stomach ache, the Berenstein Bears pay their taxes. Every single one of these books at its core is the same story. The mama bear comes to the kids and says, kids don't do this, don't do that. The kids listen faithfully to their mother bear. And then in every single story, the papa bear does what the mama bear says not to do. Classic American family portrayal (laughs) there. And the story will continue that the father does the stupid thing and then the kids follow the father and then the mother comes and says, I told you not to do this. The father repents, the son, children repent and the story ends and all is happy. The story of our life. Actually, it's not the story of our life because frankly, there are very few happy endings in the story of faith. There are happy endings in that we know how the story ends, but frankly, the reality is our life is very much a cycle like that. A cycle of peace, a cycle of disruption, a cycle on and on and on, but the same story sort of plays itself over, over and over and over and over and over over again. The book of Judges is about that story. It's about the people living this cycle of depravity and beauty and righteousness and unrighteousness over and over and over again. And it has some profound things to say about you and I as people. In the midst of this cycle, God sends a person by the name of a judge or a deliverer. And these people are people who God sends for a particular period of time to save Israel out of their stupidity, really. And I wanna read one of these stories about one of these judges, one of these, these deliverers by the name of Ehud, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and by the way, if you ever were bold enough to read the book of Judges for a period of time, you would notice that that phrase... Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I've underlined that phrase in my Bible because that phrase is repeated like 18 or 19 times in the whole book. So if you're reading this 3,000 years ago and you read this, you'd be like, wow, like either this person who read this is incredibly repetitive or they have a point. And because I would believe that this book is inspired, I would say it's intended. And the reason, every single cycle of a new deliverer, a new judge starts with the people doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. So they do something really stupid. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power, Over Israel. It evokes this image, by the way, it evokes this image, doesn't it, of Israel almost being back in Egypt. They are now under another power again. They're no longer under Yahweh, they're under this this other power. And this is this is one of those things about the Old Testament that makes me stay up at night. Is that God is so interestingly willing, in the midst of Israel's life, to allow somebody to come in and destroy them. And I'm gonna tell you why I don't like that. (laughs) I don't like that because it doesn't really fit into my lovey-dovey bro Jesus, of this Jesus who just like thinks everything that I do is incredible. It doesn't fit into that. And actually, it portrays a picture of God who is willing to let his people be destroyed so they'll return to faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but that scares me. Like a lot. Because I don't like the fact that God is comfortable with me hitting rock bottom so that I can learn what I need to learn. I would really like the bro, happy-go-lucky Jesus. And sometimes that is the Jesus that we have. But sometimes we have a a God who allows us to be, well, ah, destroyed so that we can learn faithfulness all over again. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. So this is not some small city This isn't some tiny little city falling to the enemies. This is like a major city that God allows to fall. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, a judge by the name of Ehud, who was, catch this, high qualification for being a leader in God's kingdom, a left-handed man. the son of Gera, the Benjamite. I, I find we're gonna see that Ehud is actually going to be a hero in the story of Israel. And what you just saw was what we academics call a CV, a curriculum vitae, which is what have you taught, what have you done, what are your qualifications, where's your PhD from, all that sort of stuff. And we see right here the qualifications for being a judge, for being a deliverer are you can't write with your right hand. How did you get into the judging business, Ehud? I'm left-handed. Notice in this just very brief moment, I think this is intriguing, that the two qualifications for somebody to lead as a judge in this story are that the people pray and somebody is left-handed. There's no note of this guy having a phenomenal seminary degree. He didn't go to Bible college. Yeah, they didn't exist 3,000 years ago, but there's no notice of a, a phenomenal training. It says nothing about sitting under a phenomenal pastor for 10 years and learning all the ins and outs of ministry It says, well, he was left-handed. When I look at the life of Jesus, I find it very interesting that Jesus took really, really, really normal people and did really super normal things with those normal people. That Jesus, he didn't, Jesus didn't, and by the way, I believe in seminary and Bible college and I have a PhD in this whole thing. I went to seminary Bible because I believe in it. And for those of you in this room, this is a moment of inner healing who have gone through both of those places. I am not bemoaning seminary. I am not bemoaning Bible college. I did both. I teach at two seminaries and three Bible colleges. Listen to me. I believe in it. But for those in this room who are also going through paying off their debts, feel me. That I, it strikes me how absolutely few people in the Bible went through incredible training to serve God. Training like Bible college and seminary. When I look at the life of Jesus, I see a guy who took normal people. Jesus did not call the trained, he trained the called. Yahweh, he, you know, go get a seminary degree, a Bible college degree, learn your Bible, that's healthy. But he's not necessarily needing trained people He just needs a couple people who are left-handed. He needs a couple people or just normal, normal people. Oh, and right-handed people can come in too. Because it's not just about your training. If you're available, God can use you. Ehud, this left-handed man, goes to this evil king. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, tribute, some sort of tax, some sort of gift. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. This is not the last place in the Bible that we have this image of a double-edged sword. Later on, way to the right in the book of Hebrews, we have this image of God speaking about this double-edged sword being the word of God, the scriptures, the very voice of God to the people. And so this image of a double-edged sword, he evokes this image. Ehud takes, he's a left-handed man, and he takes the sword, and where does he put it? He puts it on his right thigh. It would be expected to put on the left thigh, but he puts it on the right thigh. He hides it. And I think I'm not too uncomfortable saying that that's what we do with Scripture, that we hide it within ourselves. and It becomes the strength with which we can use to defeat, well, the sort of kings that we're gonna see right here. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was, and I'm sorry for this, but it's the Bible, I didn't write it, who was a very fat man. For the people who would have been reading this 3,000 years ago, the image of, of a fat king would have been a very intentional penmanship for whoever wrote this. I mean three thousand years ago, it was uncommon for somebody to be pictured as overweight. And this this image is one of somebody who is living in luxury, opulence, and they're living on the livelihood of other people. This man who is subjecting others so that he himself can live in luxury. So whoever's writing this, when they penned that in there, they didn't have to write that he was fat. You kind of wonder, don't you, like, okay, people who wrote the Bible, just be a little nicer to the characters you're predicting and speaking of. But in this very case, I think that that's very intentional because it's evoking this image of some guy who's sort of living on everybody else's livelihood. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented this tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And listen to this. This is this is the breaking point of this story. At the idol's Near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, "I have a secret message for you, O king. Where did this? Where, where were the idols? Gilgal. And what happened to Gilgal?" Remember, this was the place where Joshua had instructed the people to put rocks on the side of the river, in the river, to remember the memorial of God, Yahweh, bringing them into freedom. This place of God, this is all yours. This is everything, God, we believe you're supposed to do through us. We give you memorial. We believe in you. We give give you all the glory, all the honor. And as Ehud walks by, what does he see? He sees idols to other gods in the very place where they were to remember God. And it says he turns around himself. He has this moment of, I would imagine, complete and utter anger. He goes back. The king said, quiet. All of his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose in respect from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right leg, and plunged it into the king's belly. And I'm sorry for the rest of this because some of you are thinking about lunch. Verse 22 even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. You can't cover this in Sunday school. Make a macaroni thing out of that. <laughs> then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came. They found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. He must be going to the bathroom. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. They turned bright red. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key, they unlocked it. And there they found their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. And while they waited, Ehud ran away. He passed by the idols and he escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down from the hills to him with him leading leading them. Catch that image. Where are they all at? All the Israelites, where are they? They're in the hills. Why would you be in the hills? Because you'd be scared. And when Ehud runs out in victory, he proclaims the trumpet of victory in this picture. You can just see the hills, people running down. We're free, we're free. And I love, I love this because he says, he says, follow me, which isn't the last time, again in the Bible, someone's gonna say, follow me. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy into your hands. Leadership lesson for all of us. Listen to how he is the one who does the battle, but he says to the people, it is your victory. He doesn't individualize it. He doesn't personalize it. He doesn't say, hey, look at the cool stuff I've done. He says, the king has been killed and he's given him into your hands. If you're a leader in the body of Christ, You live under the freedom of Christ, and you celebrate that. But it's not just your victory, it's our victory. When I baptize 25 kids who give their life to Jesus, I do not say that I baptize 25 kids so that I can put on my wall this thing next to where I hang the heads of the deer that I have killed. Look at my trophies! I don't do that. When I proclaim to you that 25 high school kids gave their life to Jesus, dude, that is your victory. That is God's victory. We proclaim before him no preacher, no speaker, no worship team. No, 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 no. None of that stuff. It is all of our victory. And he says, "He himself has given Moab into your hands. You're free. You're free." And they followed him down and taking possession of the fjords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, which is like a lot to strike down. All vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 18 years, 80 years. Here's what's incredible about this story. We have juxtaposed two characters. We have Eglon and we have Ehud. Eglon represents the evil king, the one who ushers in the evil regime. And over here we have Ehud, the the guy who brings in peace, God's regime. We have these two characters, Eglon the evil and Ehud the peaceful. And when you look at this story, this is what strikes me, is that either peace or evil, hear me, either peace or evil are ushered in by a person. Either peace is ushered in by Ehud or evil is ushered in by Eglon. This is why that scares me. It scares me because I don't know why God is so comfortable to still want to use people. In my mind, people, you are the biggest problem for God doing what he wants to do in this world. You are also the greatest solution. I don't understand why God in his economy is still saying, I would like to use people to do wonderful things in the city of Portland and Hillsborough. I don't know why he says that, because frankly, if he removed us from the equation, it would just be easier. But God still uses people. He uses Ehud to usher in Peace. And you could say, my friends, I know some of you are even thinking this. AJ, this is a wonderful sermon for leadership. This is for pastors, every pastor in the world. should. if the pastors would just get this stuff right and be fine, we would all be just happy cows. If the pastors in this place would just get it together, read this stuff, this is leadership stuff. We don't need to hear this on a Sunday morning. Just let the leaders deal with this. And all of that is fine and good unless you forget that in our Bible, it says in Acts 2 that the spirit of God comes on all of us, not just a few. That the spirit of God falls on all flesh, men, women, children, sons, daughters, on you. And that this story isn't just about somebody being a leader. It's about this. It's about you being filled with God's Spirit and ushering in God's peace right where you're at. Because you do have the power. This is what scares me. You have the power to be Eglon or Ehud. You have the power. To usher in an evil time, and you have the power to usher in God's peace. I want to talk about how we can be Ehuds people who do usher in peace into our marriage, people who usher in peace at work, who usher in peace in the classroom in our neighborhood, people who usher in God's beauty into dark, dark places. Whenever I think about this story, I think of a guy, one of my favorite people in all of church history, his name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther in the 16th century was a man who saw the church, the church he was a part of as being very corrupt. Biographers talk about how Everything really started to change for him when he started to see priests in his own geographical area from his church sleeping with prostitutes after church services. And when he saw the people in his church doing such horrible things, he, he sort of had a moment where he goes, this just isn't right. And he was really angry because he saw the church using and abusing money and doing horrible things with the the finances that people gave. And Martin Luther started what we call the Protestant Reformation, which is this major change and shift in in in, in the history of Christianity. What I love about Martin Luther is that he was willing to see and do something about something that he saw was wrong. And he acted. He did something where nobody else would act. You and I are called to be in the same way that Ehud was, people who usher in new seasons of grace and new seasons of peace. If you're a note taker, I wanna offer you three very important ideas from this text about how to be people that usher in a new season. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. A judge never outsources personal responsibility. I'll say that again, a judge never outsources personal responsibility. This moment when he walks by these idols at Gilgal, where it was to be a place for God, he has this, I would imagine, moment where he just rises up in anger and he goes, this is wrong. And then he turns around to go and do something about it. The problem is, is we, we as Christians, we really don't do this very well. I mean, I don't know about you, but there, we have the tendency to want to... Um, even about church. I don't know why we keep coming back to church, but we do, we do this thing. I've done it too. You've done it. We're all sinners. I'm, I'm pretty sure, my Bible said, all the sinners fall short of the grace of God. And I know Greek, and I'm pretty sure that the word all means all. That we all do this thing where we go, wow, what, you know, man, if they'd really fix the church, things would be fine. Wow, if they really got the uh, children's department fixed up, man if they just would do this if they would just do that man if the church would if they would just do this here's my problem with that is the word they people who are anointed with the spirit of god don't say they need to do something people anointed with the spirit of god are to say i need to do something about this it takes this idea from it being something everybody else needs to do too. I am personally going to do something about this thing that is disturbing me. When I see somebody on the side of the road who does not have food, I'm not going to blame my president for not doing something about it. I am a Christian. I'm an anointed follower of God, and it is my duty to be a Christian. It's my job. When I see something wrong with the church, when I see something wrong with my friends or my family, I could blame everybody else for it, or I can take responsibility. Most of the, (laughs) this is, I don't know why, most of the people that are friends of mine who wear the dark room glasses, have been raised with a very strong sense. And I don't want to offend you if you have dark rim glasses, but I probably will. But we have been ingrained with this weird sense of entitlement. All of the things we are owed in our life, oh, this, oh, that. And by the way, frankly, sorry, not just the people with the dark rim glasses, like all of us. Where we're owed this and we're owed that, and you know to do this, and we do that on a spiritual level too. We're like God, if we just if you could put me in a perfect place where I can grow and have this pastor just like perfectly thing to do, it and I would grow and it would be fine. And my friends, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Because in the story of Scripture, when you're living under the cross of Jesus, God doesn't owe you anything because He's already given you everything. When you live in the cross of Jesus, you have one debt to pay. My Bible says your one debt is love to others. You owe people. You're not entitled junk. When you live under the cross of Jesus, I'm sorry, it's a pretty good gig. You were going to hell, and now you're going to heaven. Pretty good gig. When you live in that, when you live in that context of living under the cross of Christ, you realize that these entitlements are absolutely in the way of me being a free person who just gives and loves and serves. And when you live under that, you choose to take personal responsibility. You don't abdicate it. You don't outsource it to other people to do it you yourself choose to say I have been saved by grace I have one life to give away a judge is somebody who chooses to take personal responsibility as Ehud did to stop blaming perhaps others and doing it yourself what is the thing that you have outsourced that you need to take responsibility for your note taker write this down as well a judge is someone who brings others out of hiding (laughs) this little picture of the people in the hills coming out and now being free because ehud proclaims freedom the king has been killed i remember i was talking about this actually with the camp this In the story of scripture, there are a number of people who are really afraid, who get really freaked out and scared. One of these people is the guy, Nicodemus. Maybe you've heard of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter two. And Jesus has this whole conversation about being born again. In order to know the kingdom of God, you've gotta be born. But it says in John two that Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? At night. Now, at the very end of Jesus's life, in like John 21, John 20, Nicodemus comes to Jesus again, except this time Jesus is hanging on the cross. Nicodemus takes his body off of the cross with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And it says in that story that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh in order to embalm Jesus's body. He goes from, well, and by the way, that's why theologians call him Nick at night. (laughs) Because he always comes to Jesus at night. In the first story, he comes to Jesus in fear at night. In the second story, he comes to Jesus at night out of love. Now you talk about a massive change in somebody's life. You and I, when we live in fear, the people around us live in fear. When we live boldly under the grace and goodness of God, people come out of the hills. When I stand in front of 300 kids and proclaim, I really actually believe that God loves me because of Jesus, and I am a massive mess up. When I say that boldly and I do it with a straight face, people want that. Because here's the principle free people, free people. When you are free, others want to be free. When you are saved, others want that. Be free. The fat king is dead. And when you live in that freedom, man, people just come out of the hills, you won't even be able to control it. I love what, what um, the Underground Railroader, Harriet Tubman, who freed thousands of slaves, once said, she once said, I have freed a thousand slaves, but I could have freed a thousand more if they knew they were slaves. When we act as though and know that we are free in a world of people that are enslaved to dangerous, horrible things, they want freedom. A judge brings others out of hiding. And then finally, I wanna offer you tonight, this morning, Number three, a judge always, always faces their fat king. A judge always faces their fat king. I was recently reading my journals from when I first became a Christian, and I was reading uh, the the things that I was saying to myself, and I was saying about God. I love journaling. It's important to do, in my opinion, because it's like spiritual time-lapse photography. You can go back and see where you were, where you are now. You, but what's really interesting, I find this very interesting that from the very beginning when I first became a Christian, the things that I was freaking out about are like absolutely nothing compared to the stuff I'm dealing with now. Because back then when I was 16, I was like, oh, does Jill like me? God, where are you? Will I finish chemistry? God, you are nowhere in it. Ah! And now I'm like, God, I live in a city of a million people and they all think you're weird. What do I do? I'm gonna have a kid, God, where are you? Yes, where is our fat kings change? But we always have fat kings, the things that we face. The things that I used to face, I used to think were huge, they're tiny now, and I'm sure that the things I'm gonna face in 30 years are way bigger than now, but I'm not called to face the fat kings of yesterday, I'm called to face the fat kings of today. You are not called to face the fat kings of tomorrow, you are called to face the fat kings of now. And every single one of us stands in front of a fat king an eglon who desires to take our life over who desires to captivate us and put it put us under its spell but i came from downtown portland today to tell you that your fat king can't touch the real king when jesus was crucified they put a sign on his cross it said king of the jews When Jesus died, people knew he was something special. They didn't know what, but they were oddly right. He was the king. When you live under the context of Jesus as your king, there is no fat king that can touch him. Eglon dies with people knocking on his door and as they knock on his door, they walk in and they're embarrassed because their fat king is dead. 2,000 years ago, another man was dead. Some people came knocking on his tomb, and when they looked in, he was not there. That is the victory of Christ that we stand under. And in the face of false kings, in the face of fat kings, We have a broken servant God who is resurrected from the grave. Jesus won every other king zero. Every year in Silverton, they do this thing called the Civil War reenactment. Have you ever been to it? They reenact a major battle between the North and the South. It's quite interesting because when you show up, there's all of these soldiers on the field, but it's kind of odd because behind you, they have concession stands, (laughs) hot dogs and soda and beer. I'm not entirely sure if the concession stands are part of the historical Civil War, but I know this, that every year you go, there's a major battle between the North and the South, and the North wins every year. It's funny because the soldiers who have to fight in this have kind of an odd job because what they do is obviously they don't use real guns, they don't use real bullets, they don't use real cannons otherwise it wouldn't be a reenactment, it would just be it all over again. And so what the soldiers have to do is they have to decide when they want to die in this reenactment. And so every once in a while, you'll see one soldier like shoot one time and then like five guys will fall (laughs) in five completely different spots. You go, that was an incredible shot. When you reenact the Civil War, the same story is told all over again. Every single year the North wins, the North wins, the North wins. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is a reenactment of the cross and the resurrection. And every time that battle plays itself out and the false kings that you fight and the false things that rule over our lives, every time you fight those things, the cross and resurrection win every time. And the angels are at the concession stand and they watch with joy as once and over and over and over again the victory of the King of the Jews is played out in your life. Where is the battlefield for you? Is it at home? If it's at home, God's grace is with you. Know that the cross and the resurrection can reclaim anything that's broken. If it's at work, be the one that brings in the grace. If it's with your neighbors, be the one that brings in peace. Because know in this story, the story is played over and over and over and over again. But every time it plays, Jesus wins.